My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Well, we're going to end and, um, and, and allow God to move us to a new green pastor next week. We're going to end our series on developing a godly identity today. And we're going to look at passage, a passage in Matthew, starting at chapter 3, verse 16, going through chapter 4 to verse 10. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, going through chapter 4, verse 10. Title of the message is Developing a Godly Identity, Hearing and Holding, Hearing and Holding. Speaking of John the Baptist, it says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he, meaning John the Baptist, saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter, verse 3, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him, in verse 8, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Lord, help us as we study. Five things about which I'd, leave, I'd like to concentrate in this passage. One, what it means to have your identity affirmed. Two, what it means to be instructed up. Three, how you live without power, impotent and isolated. Four, what it means to have your identity then questioned. And five, indisputable victory. Jesus had come to the River Jordan that he might be affirmed by John the Baptist as being exactly who he said he was and who God had anointed him and created him to be. And John the Baptist was the prophet of the day. Jesus was the Messiah. And a Messiah, being king, could not just go and print business cards and say, I am Messiah. He had to have a prophet proclaim him an independent confirmation of who he was to the people that represented the voice of God in the earth. And John the Baptist was that prophet. John the Baptist had the largest ministry of anybody in the last 500 years, probably the most significant ministry in the last six or 700 years, drawing people back to God, helping them to repent, letting them know that there was someone coming after him who was mightier than he was 
of whose sandals he was not able even to untie, which meant he wasn't worthy of being the lowliest servant in the house and wash people's feet when they came in the door. And though people thought John the Baptist was all that, he was trying to put himself in perspective of Jesus' ministry and let people understand, you think I'm amazing? The guy who is coming after me will blow your mind. I can't even untie his sandals. That's how lowly I am compared to him. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, of whom he knew, I mean, they were, they were friends and probably spent many feasts together as kids. Their parents were relatives, and so I imagine they would go down with common destinies. Their parents knew one another, Elizabeth and Mary, it says, were relatives, and Elizabeth spent six months, excuse me, Mary spent six months with Elizabeth before Elizabeth gave birth and was there probably at the birth of John the Baptist before she went back home and had to proclaim to everybody else that she was pregnant and that without a husband. And so they had some, some ideas about what it meant to go through difficulty together. And I imagine Elizabeth gave her encouragement. And so knowing that their children would have overlapping ministries, I imagine they would spend many times together while at the feasts. Though Mary and Joseph lived in Galilee, which is about 90 miles north of Jerusalem, where Zechariah and Elizabeth probably dwelt, their common moments were... Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and booths. So Jesus and John knew one another. But John said when Jesus showed up, I didn't recognize him. That doesn't mean he had no idea who he was. That just meant I didn't know who he was. I mean, I, 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 I knew him, but I didn't know him. You show up here at the River Jordan with that anointing on your life? My God in heaven. I, now I realize why I... When we played Egyptians and Israelites, I had to be the Egyptian. I get it. I need to be baptized by you, not, not me baptizing you. And Jesus said, no, we must fulfill all righteousness, which meant I need to come under your anointing in order to be legitimately proclaimed as a Messiah and the Savior of my people and indeed the world. So unless we do this, it's not being done right. So John baptized Jesus, though Jesus had no need of being baptized for, in the same way that everybody else was being baptized. And, and when Jesus came under that anointing, after 30 years of not, not having any public proclamation of who he was, all of a sudden a dove just comes out of heaven, representing the Holy Spirit, and it lands on Jesus. Now we look at this and we say, yeah, that's what happens. Well, hear me. That's not what happens to you. I, I don't know any dove that lands on anybody. Now, they'll put stuff on folk, but they ain't landing on folk. That's not what doves do. Doves land on inanimate objects that don't move because they consider you a threat or a predator at worst. So the last thing they want to do is put themselves in a, pop, pop, in a position where they might be harmed. And... We look at this in a religious way and say, well, that's just what happened. But, 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 but not only did the dove land, but it remained. If, the, if, if a bird landed on you, would you move in such a way that he could stay? Would there be anything about your movements that would be contrary to the way he would move? Would, you, would, would, would your gait be a little gimpy? Would you go in a direction he wasn't interested in going in? It says that this dove stayed. And that should be the desire of every believer. 
that, that they shouldn't just have the Holy Spirit visit them in salvation. But they should want the Holy Spirit to remain and that pleasurably, not tolerantly. Not just having to, to, to put up with you for the next 40 years. But desire to be with you because your movements coincide with his. And everything about what Jesus did coincided with what the Father, Father deemed best. The dove remained amazing. And then another confirmation. This voice came out of heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Wow. We're not quite sure who heard what. There were other times that God spoke. Jesus was in Jerusalem once. And, and he had just preached a message. And he said in chapter 12 of John, I am troubled in my spirit. Ah, I wish I didn't have to go through this, but this is the purpose for which I came, understanding that he was going to die. And he said, so, Father, your will be done. Be glorified, Father. And when he said, be glorified, Father, the Father spoke out of heaven. When Jesus had made public proclamation that he was willing to go through the will of God and die for the people, even though it wasn't comfortable, the Father came out of heaven and said, I have glorified my name and I will glorify my name. Some people heard thunder. Some said an angel spoke to him, it says. But the Father spoke. And when the Father speaks from heaven, generally, generally, it's not a standard operating procedure to do so without speaking through somebody. That's not standard. And so my hope this morning that even though you may have been drugged here by somebody, or maybe this is one of your first times here and you're here by choice, but I am surely not what you imagined church would be like on a Sunday. You've never seen a preacher sit on a stool with a bow tie. I get that. Or our worship wasn't what you expected. Maybe nothing about who we are measures up to what you think church ought to be. I get that. I'm begging you, though, in all of our idiosyncrasies, don't just hear noise today. Don't just hear decibels coming out of a man. Allow God to speak to you and hear his voice so that you can respond the way you need to. Please open your ears and don't just hear thunder. Why did Jesus need to hear that voice? I mean, you would think if anybody would, would know he was well-pleasing to God and that he was the son of God, it would be Jesus. I mean, he was God himself, yet his humanity was just like ours. You would think that that kind of encouragement would be unnecessary, yet God gave that encouragement to him. And I think it was more than just a moment where other people could hear how the father thought about this man. But it was also that Christ might receive something that would be preparatory for what he was about to go through. And what he was about to go through was unlike anything that any man had ever been through and, and experienced victory. He was about to go into the wilderness, fast 40 days and 40 nights, and then be tempted by the enemy. And so everything about who he was would define how he did, how he performed. And so the father needed to reaffirm who he was not just what his function was. Daddy did not say, this is my Messiah in whom I'm well pleased. He didn't say, this was my prophet in whom I'm well pleased, all which would have been accurate. He didn't say, this is my minister, my miracle worker, my mouthpiece. He said, this is my boy. This is my boy. Why? Because identity 
is absolutely primary to function. And if you don't know who you are, you will never do what you should do well. You may do it a little bit, but you won't do it at the level at which you need to do it unless you know who you are. You won't be able to go through your trial as well as you should unless you know who you are. You won't be able to go into the wilderness well prepared. And this is why I'm telling you, I beg you, listen. Listen today and hold on to that which is being said. You may be going through a very difficult moment, but when you're in here, you're not. See, church happens to be the refuge. It's the city of refuge, if you will, where people can come and for one hour experience no trial. Now, when you go outside that door, it's all going to start over. You're going to go through exactly what you went through before you came in. But while you're in here, you're in a bubble of grace that allows you to hear without the distraction and noise of the world. So you know how best to posture yourself toward the reality that you must face when you exit. Are you listening to me? So it's important that you hear what you need to hear now so you can face the way you need to face it when you walk out this door. The father knew he was about to go into something and he said, you're going to need this. The, the most important thing you will need is who you are, your identity. You're my boy and I'm happy with you. You need to hear that now. Some of you are living lives that don't make God very happy, but you're still his kid. And you need to hear that because it will help you understand how you need to respond later and help you respond better. Because it's all, your, your, your obedience and your performance are all about your, your, your identity and can you perform out of who you are rather than letting who you are, excuse me, rather than letting what you do define who you are. Big difference. And men have to, have to deal with this a whole lot more than women. And you know, we, when, we, when we get fired from our jobs and we find ourselves unemployed and laid off, something's not working, it gets to us. I mean, it gets to women. I get that. But, but to us, it's almost an identity thing. Who am I? Why am I here? It really cuts to the core when we can't do something because when God created Adam, blew into his nostrils a breath of life, as soon as he made him, created his identity, the next thing he said is, go to work, get in the garden, begin to tend. And they're so closely tied that it's, it's tough sometimes for us to separate the two. But separate we must because we are not defined by what we do. Women, a little bit different. Now, these are generalities, but I think that they're pretty consistent. I've worked with folk for the last 35 years, and it's consistent. A woman gets fired from a job, gets laid off. It's painful, but it doesn't, it doesn't deal with her identity. Women, for the most part, deal more in their identity with relationships. They define themselves by who loves them. And when they can't find somebody who loves them the way they should, then all of a sudden they feel like, am I worthy? Does anybody care about, am I supposed to be on the, it's just different. Now, there are gradations of all those, but, but generally speaking, that's the way God made men and that's the way God made women. And so when we talk about what identity needs to be, it needs to be on the basis of what he said, not in whom or to whom we relate in the natural or what we do. Who has God made you? And regardless of whether anybody accepts that, you need to accept it. Doesn't matter whether somebody likes you or not or somebody approves. 
You need to approve and you need to accept and like what God has created. Now, it doesn't mean that you will be happy with how you are all the time. But at some level, you've got to say, I am who I am. I may not be what I will be tomorrow, today, but I'm hoping that I'll be better than I am today, tomorrow. But I am satisfied with who I am today. I'm not going to beat myself up about it. I'm going to believe that God is able to will and work his good pleasure in my life. He's defined me on the basis of his love for me as a child of his. God affirmed Jesus as being his boy because he knew that through which he was about to go. And here we go with the trial. <laughs> it says he was, he was led by the Spirit up into the wilderness. Now, I, I can find many more encouraging scriptures. <laughs> God, I don't want you to lead me to the wilderness. I, I want to be led to green pastures, still waters. I want to be led to prosperity, to health. I want to be led into all that promised land stuff. But wilderness? That's your, that's your best plan for me. Will, and the wilderness is where you can't find provision very well. It has to come supernaturally. You've got to have manna from heaven in order to get bread. You have to have water come from rocks in order to get, get your, your thirst quenched. It doesn't come naturally. And so you've got to find God where he doesn't seem to be. Wilderness is no fun. But it's important that all of us go through it because when we come out of it, we are better than when we went in. We understand him better. We understand us better. We understand our purpose better. And it says that, that he was instructed up. And I have never looked at wilderness experiences as being an upward moment. Minimally parallel, mostly down. Never up. But he was led up by the spirit into the wilderness. And this is the, the, the counterintuitive moment that all of us need to have. That though it seems to be difficult and we can't find God anywhere. We can't hear his voice like we used to. We can't find the provision. Every time we dip our ladle down in the word, it seems to come up dry. Everything seems to be a little barren. Yet, we know this. That God is still, by faith, leading me up, not down. I may not hear him like I used to. I may not be able to find him like I used to. But I know he's leading me up. So I know this. If he's leading me up, that I'm going to come out of this better than when I came in. That's the faith you need to have about your wilderness moment. He was led up. The way you get to the next level is go through the wilderness. Not one amen from anybody in the room. <laughs> He was led up by the Spirit, by the Spirit. Now, he, in sports, um, handicappers, which I know very little about, will take a team that is, that is playing away, not playing on their home floor or their home field, and they will deduct at least three points in football because they're not playing at home. And when people bet, they go ahead and adjust it toward that. Three points. They said they are, they are at a three-point advantage because they're not playing at home. Whenever you are in somebody else's domain, you have to get used to the environs. And you are disadvantaged. Jesus, although the planet was his ultimately, 
it had become so messed up that it didn't feel like his. He may have been the ultimate owner, but there was another landlord. And so they had messed it up so bad that this was an away game for him. This was an away game. He was disadvantaged. And he knew what his, what his role was, to take back what Adam lost, to restore to man what God thought about when he thought about creating man in the beginning, to get victory where Adam had defeat. And so in order to do that, he, he watched film. Now, I preached on this about three or four months ago, but I didn't preach on it on the, from the perspective that I'm speaking to you today. I, preached about victory and what it meant to build an on-ramp for God. But I did mention this, that in order for athletes and professional teams or collegiate teams to do well, they not only have to practice what they are supposed to do, they, they have to figure out what the other team, their opponent, is going to be doing. And so they watch film so that they know the weaknesses and strengths of the other team. And thereby, they are able to know when they line up in a certain formation, their tendency is to do this. Therefore, in order for us to win on this play, we've got to do this. And they assess things well. If they do not do that, then they are, they're, they're going in blind, believing that their strength is going to be stronger than the other people's strength. And sometimes, sometimes you just got to know, everybody's getting paid. They're getting paid, we're getting paid. They're good, we're good. When you get to that level, it's not about just whose strength is better unless you have an exceptional, exceptional team. And exceptional teams just don't come around very often. Most of the time, it's all about strategy. My point is this, that Jesus came into this environment knowing he was at an away game, and he did his homework. He watched film. There is nothing that the enemy does that's new. Nothing. He's still working the same strategy to try to get you just like he got Adam. Same strategy. Three things upon which he concentrates for the most part. The lust of the flesh, 1 John 2.16. The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. John says these are the only three things that motivate the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. You can filter all sin and all of the world's motivations through these three things. And they started in the beginning when God said to Adam and Eve, do not eat from the tree I tell you not to eat from, meaning the tree of the knowledge of good of evil. In the day that you eat of it, in that day you'll die. So the enemy came to him and said, did God say do not eat from any tree in the garden? No, no, he said, no, no, no. He just said we can't eat from that one. Oh, I get it. Well, you know why he said that, right? Because he's concerned that when you eat of it, you're going to be just like him and he don't want no competition. What was this about? When you get right down to it, what was it about? He said this. He knows that you will be gods. You'll be like him, and he doesn't want any competition. The issue was identity. Who are you? Are you satisfied with who God made you? Are you satisfied? Is that enough? Or are you looking for something else? Identity. Identity. And this is why the father needed to proclaim to Christ before he went into his trial where he was going to be tempted in the same way, though different circumstances, same way, same motivation as Adam and Eve were tempted. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. I need you to know who you are, not just what you can do. Because the enemy is going to ask you questions on the basis of your identity. Are you listening to me? He was instructed up into the wilderness. And in that wilderness experience, he was impotent and isolated. Now, I use the term impotent with great degree of, 
of reservation because I realize it means without power and he had all of heaven's power at his disposal. I get that. But he was never more weak in his humanity than he was now. I have fasted 14 days before. And um, it, it, is, it is not enjoyable. I love to eat. The first three days are horrible. In any long fast, the first three are horrible. You feel like you're going to die. You're not, but you feel that way. After day three or four, five, you really, believe it or not, you're not hungry anymore. Your body adjusts, and it says, okay, you're not going to feed me. I get that. So I'm going I'm I'm to shut down all the hunger things. And now it begins to use your body as food. So all your fat gets eaten up. And then, after a long enough period, your muscle begins to get eaten up. Now, at 14 days, generally speaking, we, we healthy Americans have enough fat whereby muscle is never an issue. <laughs> true. It's just tr- flat true. <laughs> come on, y'all. You go to the restaurant. Do you know what internationals, when they come here, say about our food? You go to the restaurant. It's just... we. We expect our food, our plates to be this big and it to be full. No white space. (laughs) Full of food. But if you go to Europe, you go to France, they give you a little three-ounce steak. You said, is this this the appetizer? Where's the entree? Where's the entree? I can eat that in two bites. This isn't dinner. And they charge you 40 bucks. You're thinking, why? Who are these people? They'll starve over here. We're just different. I'm not being critical. I'm just making an observation. Um, but in Jesus' day, the average person was, average man, 5'8 to 5'10, anywhere from 135 to 150 pounds. Very, very slim. They walked every place, so they didn't have a whole lot of body fat. Average body fat was somewhere in the neighborhood of a man, anywhere between 10 and 15%. So Jesus was fairly fit. You take him to 40? At 40 days, your body says this because it's used all its fat reserves and now is eating a lot of muscle. It's only got organs and bone left. It says it's hungry unlike any other time in anybody's life. But it's a kind of hunger that is painful because your body is saying, I will die if you don't feed me. And this is the moment when the enemy strategizes to come to Christ. If you are the Son of God, turn the stone to bread. If you are the... He begins to question his identity. Now, while he's in the wilderness, while you're in the wilderness, you would love to have some support. Wouldn't that be nice? People who are with you, hanging with you, love you. But he was completely impotent, meaning his body had just been withered away. And he had nobody... I mean, his mama knew who he was, and John the Baptist knew, but they weren't in the wilderness with him. Sometimes when you're in the wilderness, you, you can't find help from, from man. They'll give you as much wisdom as they can, but God won't give them anymore. <laughs> because this is your moment in him. This is between you and he wants you to find out who you are and what you are not in your wilderness experience so you can grow closer with him and stronger so that you can have more victories on your own. Everybody needs to notch some. You need to have a belt that is full of victories and God for you. 
Unfortunately, most Christians live in defeat. And we justify it by saying, well, I'm only human. Stop it. Flat, stop it. You are human, therefore God gave you commands that you could obey. I realize none of us could ever be confused with perfection. I get that. But there ought to be something of God on the inside of you that allows you to experience victory more than defeat on a regular basis. Victory ought to be our portion. And here Jesus was having to go through this with nobody else around. Isolated and weak. The enemy comes to him and begins to question his identity, not his function. He didn't say if you're the Messiah, turn the stone to bread. He didn't say if you're a real prophet, speak to the stone, it'll become bread. He said if you're the son of God. Why? Because if you can begin to, t- to tear down your identity, your function won't matter as much. See, when you know who you are, then you know who's behind you every moment of the day. You know who's got your back. My children are never concerned about provision. That's my job to be concerned about provision. I pray and believe God for the miraculous so I can send my kids to college on the regular without them having any debt when they graduate. And I got seven of them. Y'all know how much college is? I'm believing God every day. Every day. I got three in college right now. About to have four in January. Or three. Something like that. I have too many kids. I got a bunch in college. A bunch in college. And you know what tuition is. You know, it's average room board tuition. About 30 grand. It's about 30 grand. That's if they don't have a car down there. And then they... I'm, 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 I'm complaining now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got to believe God every day. Every day. Trusting Him. Believing for the miraculous. But... If you don't know who you are, then you're not quite sure who's got your back. My children never, ever question their provision because their last name is Fuller. Now, as much as I love a bunch of other kids, eh, I may or may not provide because they don't have my last name. But those seven in my house, every day, they never wake up wondering if there's any food in the fridge. Not because they, they've earned it, not because they work for it, but because they got my last name. And so identity means everything to provision and function and how much I support them and what I do to defend them. Jesus had his identity question. If you are the son of God, turn this stone to bread. Now, when we go through our difficult times, We go through it long enough where we haven't heard God, we haven't seen God, we haven't seen his provision, we're lacking, we're tired, we're mad, we're wondering where he is, we question him. The tendency is for us to fix it ourselves. Jesus. Pastor, you don't know my wife. You just don't know. I mean, she doesn't tell me I'm great. She doesn't thank me for provision. She cuts me down all the time, tells me I'm not doing this, not doing that. She just nags me constantly. I had to go turn some stone into bread. I had to find somebody who would give me some provision. Tell me how wonderful I I was. I I, I couldn't take it anymore. Oh, really? How's how's your family now? Give, Give me the fruit of that bread you made on your own. Now you're trying to figure out how to keep it together. 
The problems you had were not good, but they were better than the ones you created by turning stone, your hard circumstance, into provision for your own life. He wanted to do, the, the enemy wanted to do everything. It got real quiet in here. He wanted to do everything he possibly could to try to help, the, to try to help Jesus fix this yourself. Don't wait on God. If he was with you, he would have provided a long time ago. Don't wait on God. If you are the son of God, you can fix this. If you have the anointing, you can change this right here. Secondly, if you're the son of God, took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Said, throw yourself down. Every time Jesus says, it is written. You can't just, you can't just tell the enemy, uh-uh. I don't think so. Uh, no. You got to have some word on the inside of you. He's not going to listen to a paltry no. He's going to keep badgering you. You've got to fight. You have to learn what it means to war, which means you need to read your Bible every day to make sure you are equipped with the weapons necessary to go to battle against him so you can win. Turn this stone to bread if you're the son of God. No, the Bible says man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Oh, you know your Bible. Okay, okay, okay. I got you. I got you. Come on over here to the pinnacle of the temple. Isn't this beautiful? Look at Jerusalem. Gorgeous, isn't it? You know what? You can jump. You're special. Angels will give charge concerning you so that when you fall, you don't fall, baby. You don't even strike your foot against the stone. You do that Superman thing where you just, you know, <laughs> one leg up, just kind of float down. Yeah, that's you. That's you. You can do that. When you get, when you get so anointed and graced, when you're at the pinnacle of your success, when you're at the apex of your life, there's something about your lack of vulnerability that makes you think you can do anything. Samson did. Samson was at the... Nobody had ever been what Samson was. Tearing apart lions with his bare hands. Defeating an entire army of a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Donkeys don't even have fangs. He beat up people with molars. Are you kidding me? With molars. Jawbone of a donkey. Nobody... And what did he do? Rather than finding God, you know we don't have one prayer of Samson? Not one time does he sacrifice to the Lord? Not one time does he worship? We don't have any of that. We do, we do see him complaining one time after he defeated the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. It says that he cried out because he was thirsty. Lord, I just, I just had a great victory and you're going to let me die out here of thirst? That's the only time we hear him what looks like approximating prayer. Complaint. But yet he continually crossed the line. Married a woman he shouldn't marry. Went down to a place that was full of grapes, yet he wasn't supposed to come near a grape. Not eat from the fruit of the vine, nor drink it. Married a woman of the Philistines. People he was going to have to vanquish. What are you going to do when you have to kill her brothers? How is that going to work out for you? Don't do that. Wouldn't listen to his parents. Frequented women of the night. A man who thought, I'm impervious to anything. And so he told Delilah, I've crossed, basically, I've crossed the line so many times, I can tell you the strength of my strength, and it won't matter, because God still blesses me. Other people can fall, but not when I fall, I don't strike my foot against the stone. 
other people can, can, can mess up their entire life when they jump off the pinnacle of their ministry and do something they shouldn't do, but not me. I never suffer the consequences of my misdeeds. Hear me. God may not get you every time. But please do not think because you have not been gotten, you can't be gotten. Don't think that. The only reason you haven't been exposed and your stuff isn't out there is the mercy of God. His particular mercy over your life. He is long-suffering with you. But don't keep going to Ashley Madison. Stop all that stupidness. Folk thought they were shielded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Folk thought they were shielded. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Oh, listen. I don't have any issues. I don't have an account. Be careful. Throw yourself down. You can survive when nobody... You're amazing. If you're the son of God. You don't have, when you know who you are, you don't have to prove it to anybody. Ever. Ever. And then lastly, he says, as his identity is questioned, listen, okay, those two didn't work. <sighs> Let me show you all the kingdoms of the world. And I'll give them to you if you just bow and worship me. Now, the beauty is that Jesus had watched Phil. He knew there were only three things that the enemy had in his arsenal. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Lust of the flesh was the food when he was inordinately hungry. Boastful pride of life, you can do anything and you'll never suffer. You're different than everybody else. Jump off. Lust of the eyes showed him the kingdoms of the world. He knew the enemy only had three strikes. That's it. And so he was able to say, bye-bye, before he even gave him the word. I mean, this is talking trash. This is all kind of lip. Show you the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down and serve me. Jesus says, bye. I got this one. I got this. Bye. Listen, take your ball, take your helmet, take your cleats. Go out the, the tunnel, get in the car, and drive home. Because I just beat you in the areas where Adam lost. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I mean, it was, it was the ultimate trash-talking moment. The ultimate trash-talking. He could have just said like he did all the other times. You shall worship the Lord. He says, no, buy first. <laughs> oh, it was so great. But he didn't say anything about if you are the son of God in this one. And I think the reason the enemy did not is because he didn't want to cue him as to what the inheritance might be as being a son of God. And thereby strengthen the answer in his reply. Meaning, what was Jesus going to get once he finished his ministry on earth? The entire earth. All the earth and all of his kingdom. He was going to rule all. Psalm 2 says, I've made your enemies a footstool for your feet. The inheritance is, is your nation, it's nations. That's yours. <laughs> and so the enemy was trying to figure out, how can I stop the benefit that you would receive as a son because this is your inheritance? Everything was about identity, not about function. And if he could question his identity and make him begin to think he was not who he was, it would hinder his function in the earth. Who you are is critical to how you perform. Are you listening? 
I beg you, listen to me outside of the trial so when you go through it, you won't be tempted to do stuff you should not. Indisputable victory. Using the word in order to see victory accomplished. Please, read your Bible regularly. Allow the Holy Spirit to inspire you about who you are and how you fight. And church, let's begin to develop more notches of victory than defeat. Let's begin to encourage people that all, who, who all they have experienced is defeat. That's all they know as Christians because all their friends just make excuses for their disobedience. And I am merciful. I understand what it means to be a pastor who can be compassionate to people's needs. I get that. But I'm not going to make excuses for disobedience. Nor am I going to give room and say that's normal. It might be experiential, but spirit, spiritually speaking, it should not be normal. We should have, in, in NFL terms, every one of y'all ought to be 12 and 4 every year. For those of you who don't know anything about football, that means you've won 12 games and lost 4. Nobody ever describes somebody who wins 12 and 4 and loses 4 as a loser. In fact, they're playoff ready. That's the way you ought to be every year. Many more victories than defeats. And do your best to get to 16-0. Let's pray.